the rollicking romance of a gambling hoofer who loses his heart to a beautiful dance teacher in a merry mad chase of melody and mirth to the lilting tunes of six hit songs by Jerome Kern and Dorothy Fields. The hilarious comedy of Victor Moore, Helen Broderick, and Eric Blore. Spectacular production numbers, stunning beauties, and the toe-tapping magic of the king and queen of captivating rhythm, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Sticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. As always, I'm Kristen Lopez. Andrea Clark. And I'm Samantha Ellis. We are kickstarting two episodes we have dubbed Musical March. If you thought we were going to be recording this episode in song, I actually don't have musical talent. I don't know about Sam. Drea, can you carry a tune? I'm a decent singer, not to brag. I'm a second alto. So if you need harmonizing, I'm your girl. I definitely took choir throughout my whole school years. So I could carry a tune, but maybe not for two hours straight. <laughs> I took choir as well. If you need me to sit in the back and help you sing Seize the Day from Newsies, I am perfect for it. I actually did choir more because we watched movies every now and then. If you wanted me to talk about sitting in a choir room watching West Side Story for the first time, I could totally do that as well. Not working for the purposes of this episode, but we are going to do two musically inclined episodes for the month of March, starting with our first one, going all the way back to 1936 to talk about the Fred and Ginger classic Swing Time. This is the sixth out of 10 Fred and Ginger movies, so they definitely had rhythm by that point. It's a plot that is both thin and unnecessarily convoluted. So you have the story of Lucky Garnett, played by Fred Astaire, who is going to get married to a woman named Margaret, played by Betty Furness, but his boys don't want him to leave or get married. So through a series of events, they make him miss the wedding. He has to go and try to convince Margaret's father to let him marry her. The goal is that he has to make $25,000. He ends up teaming up with a dance teacher, Penny Carroll, played by Ginger Rogers. They end up opening at a nightclub. A lot of gambling ensues. Romance is found. It snows. There's just a lot going on in Swing Time. I can't tell you what order I watched any of the Fred and Ginger movies on. I've not seen all of them, but I know that I've watched this several times. When we suggested doing a Fred and Ginger episode, I realized that I blended all of them together into one big Fred and Ginger feathery morass. So I started watching this again thinking, where's Edward Everett Horton? Not this movie, different movie. Where is the Continental? Not this movie, it's a different movie. I always feel that there is a fair bit of formula, I guess the right nice word to say about Fred and Ginger movies, which makes them all compellingly watchable, but very staid on a rewatch. At least that was my experience watching Swing Time for this podcast. Sam, Drea, what's your background with Fred and Ginger movies and Swing Time in particular? 
Well, I adore any dance and movies. We've talked about that. Like anything that's dance centric is close to my heart. I could watch dancing with nothing else going on for hours. And sometimes that's a good impulse to have in yourself as a viewer because it keeps you from being too critical from other things. Their pairing as well was magical, which obviously has been noted for decades now. We've talked about chemistry in different forms. It typically comes up in relation to a romantic nature of like, ooh, are these people believably hot for each other? Esther and Rogers, their chemistry is interesting because it is dance-oriented. I'm never like, ooh, these people are in love and hot for it. But they have such a sensitivity and a connection between each other. It shows in how they move, and it shows in a sensibility of caring, even if it's not super hot. Rewatching it this time to answer Kristen's question, in having my more critical assessment glasses on, at times it's funny because the tone of each of the dances is right for where they are with their relationship and like what that song is trying to do, but it felt more wedged in than in the past when I was just letting it wash over me. And I'm like, oh, I don't actually know if this song fits it, but they have just maneuvered the song into the moment. I would say as a whole, I've definitely seen all of the Fred and Ginger movies. Right in the beginning of my discovery of classic film, I watched a few of them in a row and they all kind of blended together. Then the last few years, maybe last year, my boyfriend and I watched all of them in order because my boyfriend loves musicals. There were definitely some misses and definitely some moments, as Kristen touched on, where I thought to myself, I feel like I've seen this before or shouldn't Eric Bloor be in this or shouldn't Edward Everett Horton be in this? A lot of actors that come and go, like you see Helen Broderick in Swing Time as well. She's probably my favorite of the supporting leading ladies, the Astaire and Rogers films. One tidbit that I dragged out of the blogging graveyard of mine is an article that I wrote in July of 2018 ranking all of the Astaire and Rogers films. Out of 10, Swing Time ranked number seven. And I'm sure we're going to get into a lot of the other reasons why, like the Bojangles number. This one just doesn't stand out to me in comparison. The romance isn't as well developed. It's just a constant will they, won't they thing. First they do a song getting together. Then they do a song about how they're going to break apart. Then they do a song about getting together. And it's a little frustrating There are definitely some moments that I love. The cinematography, I think this is one of the best of all of the Astaire and Rogers films and the direction by George Stevens, but it's not my favorite. I'll just put that out there right now. (laughs) That is as harsh a criticism as you will ever get from Samantha. I love it. (laughs) No, Follow the Fleet is garbage. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I've seen that one. It's bad. It's bad. I definitely agree with you that this is quintessential example of the movie musical, especially in the late 30s. Musicals are one of the oldest genres in the foundation of film. 
because music, if you've read Ginny Basinger's fantastic and comprehensive book on the movie musical, it just came out last year. She talks about how music has always been a part of film, even in the silent era when there was presumably none, you had outside orchestras. As the arrival of talkies came in, musicals would move the music from outside the screen in an orchestra pit into bringing the orchestra literally into the film. So this is a film that has a plot that is revolving around the pretense of why we would need music. So why do they need to be in nightclubs? Why do they need to have these exquisitely planned out staircases that diverge? You have to have all that stuff explained and really watching this movie is watching a plot being choreographed around the technical elements of a musical. It's particularly difficult reconciling the fact that the music does seep through like it. Like I said, the music took me out of it because they have these, it's like the two of them alone, empty in a thing. And then all of a sudden the strings swell because one of the major plots of the movie is about who has ownership of the band, the orchestra that accompanies them, and they're lost without it. The band director is in love with Ginger's character. So it's just funny to me that in a film where so much attention is paid to, we need the band to play or we can't dance, yet we see numerous times when they're outside in the snow. It's funny to make such a plot point um, and then have this completely separate and competing sound design element. I do feel the need to defend. The music is wonderful. Just the way you look tonight is an incredible song. I don't know if it won the Academy Award. I'm sure Kristen can let me know. It did win the Academy Award. The only Academy Award this film won. And they also weave it through in that way with a musical when you hear snippets from one song come up in another as if they're the theme for a moment or a character. It also does some really interesting stuff because this film has so much tap in it, playing with syncopation and with doing the arrangements of songs that were maybe more recognizable with a different arrangement. I don't want to discredit the songs totally. I just found it a little jarring, exactly what you're bringing up of, oh, yes, we're just going to all of a sudden have this very dramatic moment where I start singing to you, but we're also going to have all these songs where we can't do anything without the orchestra. You bring up a great point. It's almost two hours. It's an hour and 46 minute film. And so much of it revolves around this repetition of drama. You have several dramatic moments that really, by the end of the movie, have absolutely no bearing. The film starts with Fred Astaire's character wanting to get married. As with most Fred Astaire movies, he is going to marry the wrong woman, a wealthy woman of privilege who obviously is going to tell him he can't dance. He can't go to nightclubs. He certainly can't gamble. That's what the whole movie is trying to avoid him not necessarily getting married. They're not fearing domesticity. They're fearing this idea of divorce down the line where he's obviously marrying the wrong woman. If he's going to get married, he needs to marry the right woman, a woman who will understand his vices. At the same time, that plot line transitions into 
him going into a series of events where he is gambling and making bad decisions. This is the story of a gambling addict gambling away everything for an hour and 46 minutes, but all of it has a grander purpose. At the end, you find out when the first plot comes back in, when Margaret returns, that much like most 1930s, 1940s rom-coms, she's decided to give him the freedom that he needs. He doesn't have to actually ever confront anything. She just shows up with a note and says, I'm interested in somebody else. You didn't actually have to do any of the things you did. That is a part of these movies that I always laugh at, that Fred Astaire's character always gets himself into this hot water that he makes worse. And the movies end with him never actually having to battle anything. It just all ends up dissolving by chance. You know something that I definitely want to make a note of that I really dislike? Like I said, I did my ranking on my top 10, all 10 of the Astaire and Rogers films. And the ones that tended to be in the latter half, the bottom half of my list, there's one theme. Fred Astaire, in the middle of the Great Depression, loves to cost Ginger Rogers her job, wherever it might be. He's kind of a dick in some of these movies, Costing somebody their job through one way or another in the middle of the Great Depression should be a lot bigger of a deal than they make it in these movies. Is it just me? Well, they do make a point of him reacting very quickly once he has discovered that he's cost her his job to make sure he gets it back to her. He's gone in. She's a dance teacher. What a nice coincidence for this dancing man. He's pretended he doesn't know anything and then he does the very dramatic look how much she's taught me in such a quick amount of time. And then they have one of their beautiful movement sequences together. So I actually faulted him less for that moment because he didn't foresee that she would be fired and he acts quickly to remedy of it. It's more his bumbling idiot friend who eats the secretary's sandwich and then she gets fired and she just remains fired. I don't have no idea what that woman's doing with her free time, other than amusing them, she's amazing. The friend was more problematic for me. My take on Fred's duplicitous romances, which he does do a lot, that's so often his thing. It's not just that it's unrequited love or thwarted love. It's always him on the edges of cheating and emotionally cheating. This one, there are nice nods to his restraint, if I can call it that. The setup, as I was saying, when they go and they sing the one in the snow. A fine romance. A fine romance. I was like, it's not wonderful, but it's the one that's in that vein. Yes, a fine romance. And the whole thing there is she keeps trying to get cozy. She thinks that they're on dates. And he's like, oh, I have to remember I have this other woman. The strange wedge feel of that conflict is you never get a real sensibility that he was ever super in love with that woman the movie starts because he rolls up hours late to their wedding for nonsensical reasons and not just that it means that he went to work the day of his wedding as if that wasn't just like oh maybe you're disinterested dude I find that fascinating in terms of 
the other womanness of it. The thing that frustrates me about that scene so much is the minister says on the phone, he's an hour and a half late to his wedding when his groomsmen only detained him half an hour. They specifically state that. So he was already an hour late. But the groomsmen just threw on that extra half hour. He's already a bit of a bad fiance right there. To go to Sam's point about the Depression, it's important to discern that by 1936, most of the economy had actually already been fairly recovered because of the New Deal and the election of Roosevelt. Even though the more rural areas still had some severe issues, most of the economy was back on its feet. So it wasn't similar to the depression in film as we would see in 1934 or even 1935. What I notice a lot about this movie especially is how much the, not just the depression had changed films, but how the code had changed films. If you look at the depression narrative from this and something two years before that, like it happened one night, this is not a movie that takes place in the average middle America. This is a film that is set in the nightclubs and the glitz of some big city. Most Fred and Ginger movies would take place in exotic locales. And by exotic, I mean like Europe, various parts of France and Paris, New York, big metropolises. And that's what you're really seeing here is the return away from the breadline back into spending money. The distinction here, though, is that in film, at least by 1936, you had the code enforced. So these are characters that are not imbibing alcohol as much as they would have been just two years before. These are characters that are not smoking as heavily as they would have been two years before. But, oh, they are gambling. There is so much gambling in this movie. And yet, for all the code's fear of moral decrepitude, Lucky is a gambler that is mocking the horrors of gambling. They need to get Lucky the suit. They bring in this drunk guy who they're like, he just lost all his life savings. He'd sell his clothes if he had to. And that's the joke is that Lucky is hopefully going to gamble him so that he will lose his shirt, literally. I love that the movie doesn't seem to necessarily have a problem with that. The gambling throughout is such a strange through line because on one hand, there are a lot of films that take personal internal conflict, like gambling, like having to overcome something, like self-esteem, whatever it is. Obviously, you put it in there to enrich the character, to broaden the story, to give more possibilities of conflict. This movie is interesting because gambling is a sincere addiction The people who suffer from it, like you're saying, suffer from it. The guy that we saw who's so drunk he can't stand that they're going to fleece is very sad. Regardless of the financial times, knowing them, it makes it even worse. But Lucky's gambling habit, and I say habit because although they keep claiming it's an addiction and it's very important to Ginger's character that he stop. But the only reason he cleans up is because he doesn't want to make more money because once he makes more money, he is supposed to return to his original love and get married. That's the promise he's made, which is not an addiction, which is just a weird moral code. Exactly. It's a moral code. It's not an addiction he has to battle or overcome. 
like it's very easy for him to stop. And then even at the end, he's like, yeah, I'll never do it again. Also, they start making all this money from dancing. So it implies that all he ever really wanted to do was just have money and be comfortable instead of the fact that when we first meet him, because he's not even the full charlatan. They have his bumbling friend there who's the one that steals the lucky quarter that sets all of this in motion with Ginger's character. Fred gets the darkness and glamour of being the gambler and being kind of a bad boy, but he's never actually a bad boy. He's just a guy that's bad at planning things, late to his own wedding, and kind of oblivious when he should be paying attention. He has such a sense of morality. That's the thing, is that no one knows if he's making X amount of dollars. He doesn't have to go back, but he's made a promise, damn it. And he's going to honor that promise. And the only way he's going to get out of it is if Margaret says that she no longer wants Another thing to bring up is that, yes, this is 1936. So I know somebody will inevitably say you can't talk about gambling addiction as we know it now. What's fascinating in looking at this from the context of how film had presented poverty just two years before is that none of these characters are forgotten men by any stretch. Lucky is a man who has no sense of financial security. One minute he's got all this money, the next he's got nothing. He's what we would now consider a modern day freelancer in terms of always having that hustle and always going from place to place. But he has a plan. He always is able to, as the song says, pick himself up, dust himself off, and start all over again. Even the drunk that they bring in is not presented as this forgotten person. He's not disheveled. He's not in rags. He's just a wealthy guy who's an idiot. That's where you see this last of the screwball comedies that would come out, where the wealthy are presented as not necessarily ditzy, benevolent love interests a la Catherine Hepburn and bringing a baby. They are buffoonish idiots who don't have any real happiness in their life. And so they have to fill it with alcohol and gambling. The things that Lucky and Penny are against because they are hard scrabble, up by your bootstraps type of characters that are able to have fun and security on their own terms because they have a song in their heart and a dance in their step. There's this concurrent theme throughout the 30s of rich people doing ridiculous things, a la my man Godfrey. Exactly. That definitely would change once World War II starts. Then you get the push into the horrors of government as evidenced by the rich people, a.k.a. Pottersville, in It's a Wonderful Life. I think 10 years later, we have a really different look at the wealthy that has stuck with us in films even into 2020. I mean, it's Musical March. we got to talk about the singing and the dancing. I find this to be a really interesting use of the musical because musicals have so many different definitions. People define a musical in different ways. Watching this, I realized that there are six songs, as the trailer will remind you. If you watch the trailer for this movie, they really sell the music more than anything else. Fred and Ginger just seem ancillary in comparison to the Dorothy Fields and Jerome Kerr and Score. There's six songs. Yet I always feel that for every two-minute song, there's a 15-minute dance sequence. So it, this movie 
always feels a bit unbalanced in that regard. No such thing. No way. <laughs> I want two minutes singing and 40 minutes of dancing. That's what I'm looking for. I agree with Kristen, and I think it's funny that we disagree on that point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the person that goes into An American in Paris and says that that 13-minute long dance sequence at the end is just too much, no matter how much I adore Jean Kelly. Samantha. Samantha. I love the songs, but the dancing. No, I would watch the dance scene in An American in Paris. The amount of times that I've just wished it would be five times longer. Oh, I could live in it. <laughs> Are we going to agree to disagree? Wait, I'm disagreeing with Drea for once. Hold on. This is big news. Are we ranking our favorite numbers now? If you would like to, you are welcome. I am not going to impugn on your desire to rank things. The Way You Look Tonight is a classic song, so we have to throw that in there. They're all good to a certain extent. And that song is the most iconic out of them, but you chose the song where they're seated. <laughs> because that's the one where he's playing a piano and she's been dyeing her hair. One of the most well-known song every wedding every romantic comedy of the 90s uses that song and it all started from a moment where ginger rogers comes out with whipped cream on her hair because that was what they used that's hilarious that the, one of the most enduring romantic songs is a scene where ginger rogers has whipped topping on her head I love that too. That is one of the few things that I remember from this film. I'm like, oh yeah, that's swing time. The pick yourself up number is the most classic dance number of this film. Definitely one of the standouts in their 10 works. But for me, I'm going to go with like as my favorite, Never Gonna Dance. Because Ginger Rogers' dress. We can talk about her fashion in film. But that dress is stunning. And I feel like it's also the most meaningful song because you think that they're never going to see each other again. It's really beautiful and really well done. It involves the beautiful cinematography that Samantha already mentioned. It is a, so important how people film dancing. And it's one of my favorite things about this and other of their films. Fred Astaire always insisted on the idea of showing their full form. And you also get a sense of the long takes of it, of that they're doing a dance all the way through and making it look effortless. Dance-wise, there's something so emotionally evocative about, I guess it is in Never Gonna Dance. Is that the one where they end up going up the stairs and it's she's leaving at the end? Because that one has intimate moments and then it also has they're using this big stage. There's more acting that's also incorporated into that dance than anything else because they're already parting. They already have this heartache to them. And there's a few moments where they just meet. It like it starts with her leaning her head on him and then they start swaying together. It's just so beautifully done. And it's such an interesting arrangement as well because it's such a slow beginning and then it turns into the waltz, and then it ends really slow and heartbroken, and she just walks off. That's my favorite. The amount of times that I've watched the Pick Yourself Up, because it's just so 
joyful and light and they're in a smaller space and it is just nothing but talent and connection. Oh, and her dress in that too. Like, I agree with Samantha that that big poofy shoulder, oh, that thing's amazing. But there's something about the simplicity of the black dress and pick yourself up with the little white collar. Ginger Rogers is such a beautiful dancer, but she is also better than anyone at picking up a skirt and making it part of a movement. Because so much of these, she's carrying her skirt and turning it into a train or it looks like wings or something. It really makes me want to wear a lot more fabric. <laughs> the pick yourself up number is always my favorite. It's such a great example of introduction to these two characters because they don't know each other. Lucky just shows up at Penny's place of business, not creepy at all, and they have to dance together so that she can keep her job. And it's a great example of costuming, the use of a confined setting, that little corral-like thing, and it ends up with a great punchline in the sequence where Victor Moore's Pop and Helen Broderick's Mabel try to recreate the dance scene so that Mabel can get her job back. And it culminates with Pop stomping on the little gate. That is hilarious. That character annoys me in all the ways he's meant to because he is there as this bumbling moron. But Victor Moore is incredible at it because I'm regularly laughing at him. They are a good partnership in their recreation, but you're right. Him coming out and just crashing that little gate, uh, it's good. It's a solid little physical comedy bit. Then I want to get back to them in a second. They're a great foil for our main couple. The rest of the dance sequences, as much as I think they're all well choreographed, Hermes Pan is the choreographer, they're all well filmed, I don't think they have as great a sense of memorability as the aforementioned Continental or Cheek to Cheek and other films that they had done. Never Gonna Dance is a great use of choreography and set decoration. We don't give the sets in the Fred and Ginger movies enough credit because they are working just as in conjunction with the choreography, those dueling staircases that lead up. And I love what Fred and Ginger do is not just convey a sense of characterization, but they also show a sense of distance. You're not just seeing how time passes in a dance. I love the use of levels in all of their dance sequences where they'll start at the bottom and then slowly work their way up and then they'll go back down. And then the whole sequence culminates with her going out that door, choreographing a dance around a set amount of factors. We have to talk about doing a patch of blue in our last episode, and now we have to talk about Bojangles of Harlem, which is the blackface number in this movie. Oh, that's a sad irony, isn't oh. it? I'm actually upset now. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I had somehow pushed it out of my brain that swing time was the one because you always know Mr. Bojangles is out there right you're always like oh no Fred has this horrifying bad choice ugly moment and in my head I was like oh it must be another film I forgot that it's even set up in this very excited exuberant way because it's right after they've shared their first kiss behind a door all covertly and he's all tingly and excited and then he sits down in his vanity 
and starts slapping on black makeup. I was like, oh no, it's coming. The thing that made it stand out, this sounds weird, but it's an amazingly choreographed piece. It is such a beautiful... If you took away his horrible decision and then also... There's even this, what would be an interesting set design because this is a performance that he as a character is doing at the nightclub that they're all working at now there's this whole thing of these shoes and that he's wearing these really long legs even the shoes have that horrible black face oh there's a terminology for the particular caricature that it's doing that's just gross but basically it's fred astaire dancing with 30 women Some of it is so beautiful. They all start joining in on this long line of partner dancing with him. There's no excuse for it. I'm sure the existing excuse is the culture of the time. I can't wrap my head around that, of how that would have ever been considered appropriate or not insulting or offensive. I sound like a jerk because I'm like, oh, I almost wish it was with a horrible dance too. But... It is that thing. They put all of this time into creating something beautiful. And at the heart of it is just this hurtful imagery. I don't know how that was ever reconciled in someone's brain. It's really hard to watch. If you watch the short that TCM produced about blackface that they've shown several times, you can find it on YouTube. It's a 12 minute short looking at the history of blackface. And it's a must watch in order to hear how a lot of performers would argue in this time period why they were doing what they were doing. Having read Janine Basinger's book that does discuss this and and watching that short and knowing a little bit about the history of blackface and media, this was meant to be a respectful tribute. Fred Astaire was heavily influenced and was a huge admirer of Bill Bojangles Robinson and wanted to make something that would honor him. It's so weird how people assumed at that time that that blackface minstrelsy was meant to be a moment of reverence for somebody compared to other musical moments and there are so many that unfortunately applied blackface to them i want to say all blackface is horrible all blackface minstrelsy is terrible and is this horrible indication of the times yet in comparison to stuff like holiday inn's abraham number Or what's the one that Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney do? I forget which one of their movies. Babes in Broadway? It might have been that. Or Babes in Arms, I'm thinking. Babes in Arms. This is probably on the lower end of the offensive meter. Offensive is still like offensive and then like, oh, dear mother of God, what am I watching? This is on the lower end of the spectrum for a couple of reasons. One of which is that he's wearing lighter skinned makeup. You watch Babes in Arms the use of women and hairstyling it's egregious but it's not terribly egregious i feel like somebody's gonna say i'm condoning this i'm not i'm just saying that on the spectrum this is lesser the camera's also farther away so you really can't tell until astaire gets those close-ups how outrageous the blackface really is and by 1936 you also had this push away from the more outrageous uses of blackface, such as the bulging eyes and the Al Jolson mammy type of stuff. So 
I can't speak for Astaire, but I'm going to for about 30 seconds and I could be completely wrong. I really think that he thought a lot of those factors would not be presenting it as offensive, that it's not that offensive because of these moments. And it is a beautifully choreographed sequence, the use of shadow play, the use of mock Busby Berkeley with the big legs that come out. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't honor Bojangles at all. It works for maybe audiences in 36 who remembered Bojangles' style of dance, but really it just seems like Fred Astaire dancing like he normally would in blackface. There's no way, and Janine Basinger goes into this a lot in her book, there's no way to determine that this is a Bojangles tribute. There's nothing that identifies Bojangles aside from the fact that he was black, which just makes it all the worse. That for Astaire to say out of one side of his mouth, well, this is a tribute to how much I respect this man. And yet there's no identifiers of who this man was. That is the most egregious element. Another point that they bring up in that blackface short that you were talking about that they air on TCM, Donald Bogle explains it perfectly. If you actually look at Bojangles' films and his work and his dance, he never dressed like that. He never was so ridiculous in his garment choices or as exaggerated in his dance. It's pushing a really horrible stereotype. Fred claimed that he was trying to pay tribute to Bojangles, but that was nothing like Bojangles. You probably wouldn't even really know that it was supposed to be Bojangles until they actually say it. That's a bit of a downer as well. But at the same time, I like to hope that if Fred had been around today, he would understand that that's not the right thing to do. That's always the litmus test that I put it up against. Would Judy Garland have done this in 2020? No, she wouldn't have. Well, no one would do it now. Well, there might have been some people that would put their foot down and say, I want to do this. This is what I'm going to do, whether the times change, whether they like it or not. I'm probably going to get a lot of flack for this. I think Al (laughs) Jolson might be one of those people. That's why I'm not a big supporter of him. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. (laughs) I was going to say, and those people who would want to do blackface now are racist. (laughs) You bring up a great point that there is this hard way of watching this sequence. It's called Bojangles of Harlem. But if you don't know who they're talking about, is Lucky Bojangles of Harlem? Is he... A guy from Harlow who dances like Bojangles, it's not understandable as a tribute. And so I have to give Fred some flack and be like, no, it's not a tribute. I hate to say it, but Fred just wanted to do a blackface number and that's what we got. I have not seen that short from TCM, so I'm interested in checking it out. Wanting to do a tribute and successfully doing one are different. Fred Astaire is... has proven himself to be an honorable artist in many other ways, so the intent might have been there. And it is impossible to divorce modern eyes to impart only a historical context in viewing things. But I agree that this was not a successful Bojangles tribute as much as it was, ooh, I created a piece inspired by what I think this person represented. It's not aged well. And there's no way to retrofit it, but context is always helpful and it will always bum me out because it is such a wonderfully made piece. 
thing that bums me out the most, as I believe Donald Bogle also mentioned in the short, is here's completely successful white Fred Astaire doing a tribute to someone who was just as talented, but obviously could never get those same chances that Fred Astaire did. And I think that's the real tragedy here. That's a great point. If you look at Bill Robinson... He was such a gentleman and he was very refined in a lot of his dances. You see like stormy weather. He was always wearing the same top hat, white tie and tails that Fred did. There's a huge disconnect that is unfortunate. There's no good way to transition. So I want to transition to talking briefly about our romantic foil to our main couple, which is Mabel and Pop. They are hilarious. You also have Ricky Romero, our resident stereotypical Latino. Georges Metaxa was Romanian, not Latino in any way, shape, or form. You have these other comic characters that are going to get involved in the romance between Lucky and Penny. We've talked about Victor Moore and Helen Broderick being great. They're so much fun because it, unlike an Edward Everett Horton or an Una Merkel, younger, this younger version of our main characters, I like that they're older that they're not as graceful. Mabel really gives Pop the business in terms of making fun of him. She's got this acid wit to her. You want them to get together, and the movie never really posits that they're actually in any type of relationship, although Pop doesn't like that Mabel won't talk to him at one point. Their relationship comes off as more genuine in certain points than Lucky and Penny, because it really, you naturally see that progression in how they build this relationship. My personal feelings on Victor Moore and Helen Broderick, I really do love them both as well. Victor Moore probably isn't as great of a choice for the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies. He distracts a little too much. His voice and his mannerisms just completely take away whatever scene he's trying to be a part of. But Helen Broderick is definitely my favorite, as I mentioned before, my favorite supporting female of the Astaire and Rogers movies. She has that really sharp wit. She's just so funny. And she's also so warm and relatable. She is one particular actress that I feel would do really well in modern cinema if she were still around. Victor Moore, I have to just say, I still want to hug and squeeze him like a teddy bear after seeing him and it happened on Fifth Avenue really recently. So he can do no wrong either. Helen Broderick creates such an archetypal character. There's always the foil. So there's been shades of this before. This isn't for literally decades afterwards, but Kay Thompson in Funny Face in the same vein of woman. It's my favorite character is the long-suffering, eye-rolling, a little balance of being both glamorous and over it. Helen Broderick does an incredible job of fluffing out that role and giving it a lot of meat with what she's doing versus the lines she's given or the scenarios. And she has to go so far because Victor Moore is, like I said, like, He's a cartoon character in this. It's endearing and exasperating. He's doing such a whole thing that her performance has to calibrate to keep him grounded in their reality. In any other film, 
what he's doing, that character would be drunk in every scene. And this, it's not implied that he's drunk. Always. He's drunk some, but it's mostly implied that he's the cartoon. That's a really good point. Helen does such a good job of mellowing him out, as you mentioned. I will have to say, I love her character a lot more in The Gay Divorcee, which is one of my favorite Astaire and Rogers films. She gets those great lines and that great screen time and that great role in that film a little more so than this. I just love seeing her. I love seeing her face and hearing her jokes. She's great. The only thing I discredit any of them for, and it's entirely the writing and direction, this movie has my least favorite ending almost ever. Not because the puzzle pieces of who ends up with whom isn't satisfying, because that all comes together as you know it will, in that Fred is released from his relationship. This movie ends with five minutes of forced laughter. That's the most painful thing I've ever seen. And it had to be for all of them. The fact that Helen Broderick has to say these lines through laughter, it's just mean. It's insane to me. I'd forgotten about that. And right there, a testament to the different levels of acting chops that they have of how well are you going to A, force yourself to laugh hysterically, and B, give dialogue through that laughter. That's a true acting challenge. I always find that the inclusion of a stereotypical Latin American character is always a really odd point in these movies because we didn't necessarily have the good neighbor policy at this point in time. So you didn't see a lot of need to include Latin American characters. Ricky Romero, our forefather to, I'm assuming, Ricky Ricardo. He's a character that just seems to be this bug that keeps bothering these characters. Unlike other Fred and Ginger movies, he never feels like an actual problem. He always feels like this character that Petty is dangling to be like, well, I could marry him. Could marry him. I could. I'm going to. And that's always the part of this movie that just feels like it's a bit superficial. Eric Rhodes is a much better counterpart in the other Astaire and Rogers films. Keep making comparisons here. He's never really a threat, not only as far as marrying Penny, but also you couldn't just get somebody else to play if it's that important that they try out. You couldn't get one guy with a trumpet to play a little song for them while they dance. I don't understand why that was such a big deal either. We bring up a point too. It's hard not to compare these movies to the other movies. By this point, there were five others to go off of. That's a lot of history in a very short amount of time to not compare to other things. You had stuff like Top Hat, which is a better movie than this. Shall We Dance would be the one after this one, which Swing Time just is a nice, comfortable sandwich in between those two superior films. This has elements that were borrowed from the previous movie and elements that would be expanded on in the next movie. Like I said, there are definitely worse films. Out of the 10, for me, it ranked number seven. My ranking is a little outdated. Top Hat's definitely a better film. The Gay Divorcee, 
And then my favorite, Carefree. There are better films, but there are some really good little gems in here that are peppered in. Like, again, the cinematography is beautiful, especially in the A Fine Romance scene, the snow. It's just the most romantic, pretty thing you could ever imagine. The costumes and the plot, all the different little character actors peppered in, too. It makes it a theme between all 10 of the films. It's really building on all these things that make it easy to compare and contrast. It could be a situation where you have these two actors, these two dancers who star in 10 totally different movies where there's no point of comparison, but there is a point of comparison for these. Swing Time is a fun movie, but... I feel there are better representations of Fred and Ginger. By this point, they were so comfortable with each other. You can see that shorthand between the two of them. And it's got all the highlights of other movies in their oeuvre. But the blackface is troubling. And it's got some weak story element. There are better Astaire and Rogers ones. Sam has already said what are some better ones. I would say Top Hat is definitely a must as well as Shall We Dance is great. Even something like their last film, which is the story of Vernon and Irene Castle, is is pretty good. Drea, what are your final thoughts? Really just want to talk about how much I love Follow the Fleet. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's hard because to me, I think of them and I think of Top Hat. My ranking would be Top Hat, then Gay Divorcee, The Shall We Dance or Carefree are in there. Swing Time is more in the middle for me than at the end because it is, and in a way, maybe it parallels me with the escapism that audiences were really looking for at that moment of history. When I think of watching Swing Time, other than rewatching it for this to try and make sure I was having a critical eye towards it, looking for things for us to discuss. When I think of this normally, it's just, this is all with the asterisks of Bojangles aside, it's an immersive, floaty, um, lovely film. It's a solid, enjoyable film for someone who loves to watch dancing. And it really does have, like Samantha alluding to the snow scene. You don't see that a lot. Normally, all this is about, they're either inside, where somehow a man has a three-piece suit and the woman has thin spaghetti strap dress if they're outside it's warm weather i hadn't seen that kind of snow done in this kind of romantic setting for a while there's a lot of loveliness to this film it's a nice little fluff bucket it's fred and ginger at the end of the day (laughs) you're doing okay with those two future pin idea fred and ginger with the word fluff bucket (laughs) (laughs) that would be amazing no matter what the issues are with this film no matter how much it blends into the others or whether it's better or worse the worst fred astaire and ginger rogers film is better than so many other movies just their 10 movies encapsulated are just some of the best parts of cinema as i know it i just really really adore them together and i love everything about their filmography Hear, hear. Listeners, let us know your thoughts on Fred and Ginger or anything musical related. You can email your thoughts to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com and we'll read them on the next episode. 
you can always follow me if you want to learn more about what I got going on on Twitter at journeys underscore film and be sure to check out my official website where I review classic movies and do other things journeysandclassicfilm.com Samantha Ellis where can fans find to get in touch with you online read your writing I have my blog at musingsoftheclassicfilmatic.com. You can catch my Cooking with the Stars posts at classicmoviehub.com. And you can follow me a little more closely, find out what I'm doing day to day on Twitter at classicfilmgeek. And Drea Clark, what about you? I am on Twitter at the Drea Clark. If you want to keep in touch with the podcast, you can listen to it a multitude of different ways directly at ticklishbusiness.podbean.com, Stitcher Radio, Player FM, or Apple Podcasts. Feel free to help us out on Apple Podcasts by leaving a rating and review. And you can always visit us on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz and find out what's going on with the shows. Why are there no episodes? We're giving away a bunch of different stuff right now. We just ended a contest giving away a copy of Julie Andrews' new memoir, Homework. I'm going to be giving away a bunch more stuff as we get closer to 500 podcasts followers on twitter yay yay if you want to do more to help the show by giving us your hard-earned dollars you can consider supporting ticklish business via patreon we have so many amazing perks all your donations go straight into the show if you become a patron right now you can have up to two amazing pins designed by our own samantha ellis i also have exclusive audio with a bunch of directors tcm personalities and i do a bunch of bonus podcasts because I have free time, right? I do a podcast with William Bibiani called Based on a True Podcast. We just did a new episode on Wired. We're going to be gearing up to do our next one on Judy. Yeah, we're doing that. I also have a Hitchcast coming out soon where Lauren Humphreys Brooks and I are going to be looking at Alfred Hitchcock movies. A lot going on over there. That's at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We are going to continue Musical March with our next episode, which is going to be probably one of the most contemporary movies we've ever done on this podcast. I know that the podcast, technically I say pre-1970, we're going to go a little bit over that because I feel like you can't talk about musicals without talking about the resurgence of musicals in the 1970s. So we are going to be talking about 1972's Cabaret. We're going to get fossy. I'm so excited. Sam, have you ever seen this? I haven't. That's why I'm so excited that we're doing it. it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I will have you know I love musicals, but this is one of the few that I haven't squeezed in there yet. I was more laughing at the fact that I don't believe that you watch anything post-1960. You might be right. You might be right about that. Lovingly mired in 1960 and below. I always say to my friends, there's the post-funny girl pre-pretty woman blank i don't know anything what anybody's talking about in that whole two decades so yeah cabaret it's the first time for me i'm excited cabaret will be next time till then